No one develops their worldview in a vacuum. It is a product of your interactions with everyone you read, listen, and talk to. I'm certainly no exception. I've benefited greatly from the ideas of other people, but often those thinkers' ideas are not neatly encapsulated in a single, easy-to-read book. So today, I'd like to share some of the people who have influenced my thinking the most. Now, to keep this list manageable, I'd like to focus on the people who have most greatly influenced my thoughts on learning. Perhaps I will write a later post for more general influences, but today I'm sharing some of the people who have taught me the most about the subject I spend the majority of my time thinking about. Number one, Anders Ericsson. Anders Ericsson was a psychologist best known for his work on deliberate practice. This is the theory that world-class performance in music, athletics, chess, and many other domains is best explained by large quantities of focused practice. Ericsson's research into practice began with a longitudinal study where an individual subject repeatedly practiced a short-term memory task to remember strings of digits after hearing them only once. Famously, most people who do this test can successfully recall between five and nine digits. But after considerable practice, this highly trained subject could successfully recall over 80 digits. This breakthrough inspired a lifetime of work exploring how focused training and effort could lift the limits of human performance. Professionally, Erickson's work was central in Cal Newport and my thinking when designing our course Top Performer. His focus on the value of strenuous practice sessions has also been a major factor in my own learning projects. Personally, I think Erickson's work has shaped a fundamental belief of mine that practice and study can ameliorate most differences in skilled performance. While the outside world often prefers people who are effortlessly clever, I've come to admire more those whose abilities have emerged over painstaking work. Number two, John Sweller. Some people persuade you immediately to their point of view. Others, you fight vehemently until you finally surrender to the weight of their arguments and admit they were right. For me, John Sweller was the latter. My introduction to his work came from his studies that showed, contrary to my prior assumption, that you don't necessarily learn more from solving a problem yourself rather than have it being taught to you directly. Sweller formulated cognitive load theory, which I reviewed in depth in another essay. The gist of it is that constraints on working memory form the primary bottleneck to learning skills we haven't evolved to acquire automatically. A key finding of cognitive load theory is that students with low prior experience with the skill benefit more from observing examples and explanations than from trying to figure out things on their own. This is often true, even if the student might successfully solve the problems that they've been provided. Reading Sweller and other cognitive load theorists' work has helped me realize that the majority of knowledge we need to perform complex skills comes from other people, and that barriers that make it harder to learn from others, such as poor explanations, omitted mental steps, or excessive reliance on figuring things out for yourself, are often the largest initial barrier to learning. Number three, Robert Bjork. Robert Bjork is a cognitive psychologist best known for his theory of desirable difficulties. The basic idea behind desirable difficulties is that certain interventions can make training seem less successful because students perform more poorly on tests immediately after the intervention, yet in the long run, those interventions can create skills and memories that are far more durable or widely applicable to other situations than more immediately effective ones. So some key desirable difficulties include spacing. Spreading studying out over time reduces immediate performance, but it enhances long-term memory. Cramming may be better for a short-term result, but it is much less efficient for learning in the long run. Retrieval. Recalling a memory strengthens it more than reviewing it does. Variability. Practicing multiple examples of skills or problem types in the same session slows down learning, but results in more transfer of that learning to new skills, longer retention, or both. 
Another common finding in Bjork's work is that students fail to appreciate the value of desirable difficulties. Students, even those who go through the protocol and learn more under the challenging task conditions, tend to rate the easier practice as better. I've argued that this illusion is a critical reason many students engage in endless review sessions rather than practice tests, which require recalling the material. Clearly, there's tension between desirable difficulties, which argues retrieval works better than review, and cognitive load theory, which argues examples are better than problem solving for novices. I might write a future post digging into the debates, but it seems fairly clear that both seeing examples and retrieval practice are important for learning complex skills. Number four, Michelin Chi. Michelin Chi's best known work is her study of physics experts and novices. When asked to categorize problems by type, Chi found that experts could correctly sort the problems by fundamental physics principles involved in the solution. In contrast, novices focus on superficial features of the problem, such as whether it involves a ramp or a pulley. A frustration of many teachers is that novices, even after taking multiple classes, often reason about problems in a rather superficial way. So when we teach physics or economics, we don't just want students to be able to handle the textbook problems, we want them to be able to apply these abstract concepts to their real life and to other domains. Still, this appears to be the natural trajectory of developing expertise. Abstract concepts, which allow you to navigate superficially different problems that have a common underlying principle, require many different examples and experiences to generalize. With only a few explanations and problem sets, most classes don't provide an opportunity to reach this level of generalization. Number five, Herbert Simon. Herbert Simon was an impressive polymath. He helped launch the field of artificial intelligence, defined a new paradigm for the psychology of complex skills, wrote a classic book on administrative theory, and even won a Nobel Prize in economics for his theory of bounded rationality. His theory of problem solving has influenced me the most. According to this theory, the way we solve problems is we form some mental representation of the problem. This creates a problem space that has our current state, some way of checking whether or not we've reached a satisfactory solution, and methods from changing from one state to another. We apply these methods in a searching process, looking for a state that satisfies the solution. The vast majority of problems we face in life have enormous problem spaces. The principal way we deal with this difficulty is by applying strong methods, primarily learned from other people, to cut the size of the problem space down dramatically. Number six, John Anderson. Most psychological theories are rather narrow in scope. A scientist devises an experimental paradigm, discovers an interesting effect, and then a flurry of research follows attempting to explain, refute, or delineate its boundary conditions. John Anderson's career-spanning work with ACT-R is different. Instead of trying to explain a single psychological quirk, he's attempted to build a computer simulation that would model the entire mental process of skill acquisition, from how people comprehend examples and instructions to what changes in their minds as they gain more practice. I've reviewed Anderson's theory before, but the basic idea is that cognitive skills consist of two parts, declarative and procedural memory. Declarative memory is for facts and examples, and it works associatively. Procedural memory consists of production rules that trigger when certain conditions are met. Skill learning is a process of first acquiring declarative memories that explain and guide the skill, and then converting those into production rules that can trigger automatically. Number seven, Walter Kinch. Walter Kinch was an expert on the psychology of reading comprehension. He developed the construction integration theory of comprehension, which argued that when we read something, we form multiple conflicting representations of the text. These conflicting representations inhibit each other, so that only the most likely option emerges into consciousness. In addition to a literal understanding of the text, we form a situation model that allows us to make inferences not explicitly mentioned in the words of the text. 
Now, I've discussed the full theory before. While Kinch focused on reading comprehension, his theory of comprehension could also be applied to other intellectual skills and domains of expertise. Number eight, Gene Lave. A major tension in my thinking is the relationship between academic skills and real-world competency. On the one hand, I value learning and education and spend a lot of time trying to learn academic skills and subjects. I believe skills underlie a lot of professional success and thus our ability to learn well directly contributes to our material well-being. But on the other hand, there are valid critiques of schooling. Brian Kaplan has made the case that much of the value of formal education is signaling, that academic skills and knowledge are unimportant for doing good work, but they're useful for showing that you are conscientious and hardworking. Other writers have argued that from survey evidence, many employers seem not to care so much about academic skills in hiring, preferring work experience instead. In this debate, I found Jean Lave's anthropological work fascinating. Beginning with a study of West African tailors, she observed that most people became competent in their craft with little direct instruction. This encouraged her to adopt the view that learning is social, not cognitive. By this paradigm, learning doesn't take place primarily inside our heads, instead it's a cultural activity we participate in. Another provocative book by Lave follows everyday people as they use math in their real lives. She found that they rarely followed the classroom algorithms, but performed competently nonetheless. One of her most interesting findings was that many people struggled to get the answer right to math problems when they were framed in a classroom setting, despite correctly solving the exact same problems in the field. I don't agree with all of Lave's thinking. For one, she steadfastly rejects cognitive explanations for learning, which are central to my perspective. Second, she seems to reject the didactic style of instruction, which I think is actually more effective. However, I find Lave's work intriguing because it covers a topic that is rarely discussed elsewhere, how learned skills apply to real life. There are many experiments on how skill development works, but far fewer careful studies that show what kinds of knowledge and skills people actually use in practice. This results in a plethora of ideas on how to enhance learning and a paucity of ideas on which skills are most worth learning. Number nine, Albert Bandura. Albert Bandura has influenced my thinking in two critical ways. The first is his concept of self-efficacy, which I've explained in detail before. His idea was that motivation isn't simply the rational calculation of expected benefits, but is influenced by our beliefs that we can or can't execute the required actions. Many people know that they need to overcome their fears, apply for a new job, seek out friends, or start exercising, but they fail to do so if they maintain low self-efficacy for the actions they need to take. The second is his social learning theory, the idea that most of what we know how to do comes from observing other people, not trial and error on our own. Behaviorists centered their explanation of human action around reinforcement and punishment, which overlooks the fact that humans are social, cultural species. We may use reinforcement to guide our choices, but we mostly figure out how to do anything by watching other people do it. In some ways, any description of Bandura's ideas does a disservice to the quality of his thinking. That self-confidence matters for motivation, or that it's easier to learn when you're shown how to do something, are hardly radical ideas. But his writing also lucidly and intelligently diffuses it would reject these common sense premises. Number 10, Barbara Oakley. So this is the first person on the list I can call a personal friend, and she has been an inspiration and influence to me ever since the first session of her wildly popular course, Learning How to Learn. Oakley has written several excellent books on learning and teaching. Her writing builds on the work of Sweller and others, but she also draws on a lot of neuroscientific research in informing her advice on the right way to learn and study. More than anything, Oakley is one of the nicest and most helpful people I've met in all my years of writing. She's encouraging to a fault and a big believer in the power of people to change how they learn. She did it herself, earning a PhD in engineering despite being someone who didn't initially feel she was very good at math. Number 11, Benny Lewis. As I document in my book, Ultra Learning, 
Benny Lewis was the biggest influence on embarking on my own aggressive public self-directed learning projects. I met him during a moment of difficulty. I was living in France and my French was coming along poorly. His fluent in three months challenges were an inspiration and also a source of envy. His approach using deep communicative immersion, overcoming fear and social resistance to speaking a new language assisted my French. It also became the bedrock for VAT and my later approach learning languages during our year long adventure. Some people have criticized Benny for the claim imputed by his website that a person can become fluent in only three months. Now, fluency is a vague term, so it's possible to define in ways where this claim is clearly achievable, so when the aim is fluid speaking, listening for easy conversations, or also clearly unachievable when the aim is native-like proficiency in all situations. But I think these criticisms miss the point. To me, the title was never a promise, but an aspiration, something to strive to reach, even if we don't always get there. Number 12, Cal Newport. Cal Newport has been a close friend and mentor for almost as long as I've been writing. We've been frequent collaborators on course projects such as Top Performer and Life of Focus. Cal started with student-oriented advice books, the best of which is How to Become a Straight-A Student. Cal Newport himself, an accomplished student from elite schools, wanted to dig deep into how some students were able to ace their exams without grinding study routines. Cal's answer combines good studying advice with a large dose of good organization and productivity skills. I suspect many students with previously haphazard studying habits and poor grades can point to Cal's book as the inspiration for their transformation into diligent and successful students. Knowing how to study effectively and having a system for doing so consistently is more important than raw intelligence for most skills and subjects. While inborn smarts will always give some a leg up, getting organized and studying properly has to be the first step if you're a struggling student. Number 13, Daniel Willingham. Daniel Willingham is one of my go-to sources for evaluating the evidence on studying and learning strategies. He was one of the authors of an impressive monograph that reviewed the evidence behind 10 popular learning strategies, and his blog delves into educational research and breaks it down for a lay audience. Finally, he's written some excellent books on learning and education. A key theme of Willingham's work is the importance of knowledge to learning. A common and misguided critique of schooling is that it only teaches facts. What we need to teach is how to think. Except knowledge is what we think with, and smarter thinking requires having more knowledge and experience. Another maxim from Willingham that has guided my thinking is, memory is the residue of thought. What we remember and learn is a function of what we are thinking about and paying attention to while we were learning. Many educational practices result in worse learning outcomes because they don't focus students' attention on the knowledge and processes needed to build skills. For example, students in a science class may spend hours decorating posters about a topic rather than drilling into the concepts underlying that topic. Number 14, Siegfried Engelmann. Direct instruction is a system of teaching developed by Engelmann and his colleagues in the 1960s. In Project Follow-Through, the largest scale educational experiment ever conducted, direct instruction was the most successful program for helping students learn. Since then, countless studies have found direct instruction to be successful, particularly with weaker students. Much of our educational system blames failures to learn on students. They aren't smart, diligent, or attentive enough. Direct instruction flips this mindset and argues that a failure to learn must always begin with examining the quality of the instruction given. Only if the instruction itself is complete and flawless should we begin to impugn students' natural abilities or motivation to learn. The idea behind direct instruction is that skills need to be broken down into their atomic parts. So, learning to read begins systematically with learning to recognize individual letters, learning their sounds, blending their sounds together to create words, and then finally putting them into sentences. 
Direct instruction is often used as a byword for traditional schooling and all the negative stereotypes that evokes. However, as I read through Engelman's theory of instruction, the thing that struck me most was that I don't recall ever having taken a class taught this way in my entire life. Number 15, Richard Feynman. I've read a ton of biographies, and while I usually find them interesting, I rarely find myself drawn to emulate the person I'm reading. Famous figures often appear heroic at a distance, but they prove to be more tragic figures when their lives are dissected in detail. Richard Feynman is different. His attitude and approach to science and learning continue to be a source of inspiration for me today. His unending curiosity, irreverence to authority, and constant hunger to seek a deeper understanding of things has been a guiding star for me most of my adult life. He is also, perhaps, the source of one of my biggest mistakes as a writer. Shortly after reading his autobiography for the first time, I decided to call a self-explanation technique that I've been using the Feynman technique. <laughs> my memory of the book was a little hazy and I remembered him doing something similar in a section of the book. Now, something about the usefulness of self-explanations and the association with an illustrious physicist caught on. Countless other explanations of the technique emerged, repeating and strengthening the assertion that Feynman had done precisely this to learn physics. And while I thought it was fairly harmless to name the technique after my intellectual hero, I now see this was a big mistake. My sloppiness as a young writer fabricated a little bit of historical trivia that now lives perpetually on the internet. Indeed, it was so successful that my role in naming and associating the technique with Feynman has been completely obscured. Despite Richard Feynman probably never using the exact technique I named after him, he has always inspired me by his quest to seek a deeper understanding of ideas. In popular media, cleverness is often portrayed as inscrutability. Feynman showed that true cleverness is simplicity. Understanding is the process of making a confusing idea seem painfully obvious, not wrapping it in layers of extra sophistication. Part of living a life devoted to learning is expecting that new ideas may change your mind. After all, if you already knew everything, what's the point in learning new things? I fully expect that the list of who influences my thinking the most will be different 10 years from now. Not only will new research be published that might overturn some old findings or cast prior concepts in a new light, but I'll be finally making my way to reading some thinkers and scholars I've missed thus far. All I can promise is that as I learn more, I'll continue to share my thinking with you. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you'd like to get five of my audiobooks for free, just go to scotthyoung.com slash podcast. 